0: Welcome to Gen Z Hoops, the Gen Z basketball coaching and sports business show. On this podcast, you'll learn from professional players, coaches, and executives from all over the world and see the court in a brand new way. And now joining you courtside, your Gen Z host, John Phyllis.
1: Mr. Fredman, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for coming on and taking time out of your, out of your super busy schedule. i um, working with the jazz to come on and, and talk to us about your, your incredible experience just basically over most of the Jazz's history. Um and it's incredible to speak to someone that just has a, such a wealth of knowledge on, on, on a team that truly is historic in the league and, and plays such a pivotal role in so much of NBA history.
0: Well, I've been very fortunate. I like to tell people that my, uh, my advocation has been my vocation and, uh, I think that's a that's a blessing in so many ways. Where I've been very lucky, I've worked with some great people, people that are in the Hall of Fame. But you know, not only in the Hall of Fame for their accomplishments from a, a basketball business standpoint, but you know, Hall of Fame type of people. And uh, I, you know, I could have never, or you know, I would have never lasted this long had it not been for being able to work with good people and, you know, getting, getting breaks because, you know, sometimes the old saying is you'd rather be lucky than good. I think the key is, is that, you know, you have to be able to take advantage sometimes of your opportunities or your luck and uh, follow it up with hard work and dedication. And I've, you know, been fortunate enough to be able to do that.
1: That's awesome. And it's, it's, of course, so important to make sure you're prepared for when the opportunity does come, because no matter how lucky you get, you have to make sure they're in the right spot, which is which is perfect. And, that, and that's definitely what you did. Curious, just, just to start off, you, we had spoke a little bit off air about maybe your your, your time in, in college, right after college, first getting into the league and in, in, in back in the 70s um, when the Jazz were first coming into shape. There was a lot of relocation stuff going on, a lot of real change in the league in general with the ABA. And there's so much to to jump into. Can you kind of walk us back and, and talk to us a little bit about your, your beginning and what that might have looked like?
0: Yeah, I was very fortunate. You know, I had transferred Illinois, the area that uh, Coach uh, Jerry Sloan was from, and uh, Doug Collins, a lot of people know he was a great Olympian and a great player in the NBA, and then a coach and obviously a commentator. I'm from that area, but I had transferred uh, schools from Southern Illinois University to Loyola University in New Orleans. And that was the same year that the Jazz were awarded an expansion franchise. And uh, one night, just by chance, I met Bill Burke. And Bill is a longtime NBA employee. As a matter of fact, he's 93 years old, still scouting for the Lakers. And that's my goal. When people ask me, when do you want to retire? I said, well, the guy that hired me in this business is still doing it at age 93. That's my goal. But Bill was the general manager. And I I happened to meet him one night in Pat O'Brien's, a famous place in New Orleans. And I introduced myself to him and told him, I said, you know, I'd really love to get into pro sports. I was probably being a pain in the rear end looking back at it. I talked to Bill and I told him, I said, hey, I'd do anything. I said, I'd sell popcorn programs I said, uh, clean your office, whatever you want. He said, you know, I like your attitude. He probably wanted to get rid of me. He gave me his business card. He says, come and see me sometime. Well, he told the wrong guy because uh, the next morning, about 7 a.m. in the morning, I was there sitting on the front steps of their office and waited for about an hour till the office opened. And they all showed up. And who are you? And I said, oh, Mr. Burkett told me to come and see him. And then he showed up and he said, wow, he said, is pretty impressive. He said, I guess I'm going to have to find something for you to do. And uh, that's sort of how I got my foot in the door on a part-time basis and sort of doing everything. People ask me, did you start as an intern, which is, by the way, a very good way to get started in the business today. But back then they didn't have interns. And so I say, no, I started as a gopher, go for this and go for that. That's what I did. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it could be done that way in today's world, but I do know if you have a attitude that you would do anything to try to get the business, you know, I do believe that works. So that's kind of how I got started. I finished uh, my last, you know, I had a year and a half before I graduated and uh, I graduated midway through the second season. And by then I was sort of working part-time for the jazz. And they offered me an opportunity uh, on the business side, mainly selling tickets, helping with promotions, all those things, knowing that my goal was to get into basketball. But Bill Bertke had told me that since my background wasn't as a player or as a coach, that I was going to have to be willing to come in and through the front office, through the business side and and do whatever. And then if I was still persistent, I may get an opportunity. And, uh, obviously then, as you mentioned, you know, things happened, you know, I took on some additional roles on the business side. I was named public relations director at that time. I was the youngest in pro sports at age 23 and 1976. And, um, You mentioned earlier that, you know, the merger of the ABA and NBA took place, you know, right before that, the summer before that. And um, so it was an exciting time. There were, you know, the Jazz, when they came in, were the 18th franchise. And then the merger added four more teams. So then there were 20, 22 teams. And, you know, for for a long time. And, then the team moved to Utah in, uh, in 1979. And, you know, they asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, of course. And I remember the owner saying, well, why would you want to leave New Orleans? And I said, I don't really want to leave New Orleans, but there's only 18 or, you know, 18 NBA teams or 22 NBA teams. And uh, I'm anxious to continue to be with one of them. And so I moved to Salt Lake City. And, uh, you know, took on some other duties, you know, dealing with broadcasting and marketing and things like that. Uh, You know, it was tough in those days because, uh, you know, we were trying to just stay in business. You know, in New Orleans, we moved because we never had more than 2,600 season tickets and trouble getting dates at the Superdome. And we moved to Utah, and immediately we had over 5,000 season tickets with help from the Chamber of Commerce. But still, it it was a struggle in the first couple of years in Utah. And, uh, you know, I held various positions. And then, you know, at the, the whole time, I kept going to every practice that I could. Bill Bertka at the time, before he left the Jazz and joined the Lakers in the 80s, he had a scouting service uh, for colleges called Burke Views, and where they hired outside scouts and, and anytime I had a chance, I would go with Bill and he sort of taught me the ins and outs of scouting of what they were looking for both from a X and O standpoint and from a player personnel standpoint. And so I just kept trying to learn as much as I could on the basketball side while I was working on the business side. And in 1987, uh, Frank Layden was the coach and general manager of the team. And he said, you know, I know you've always wanted to get into basketball and I think I'm going to hire a video guy. And he said, you know, I could hire a coach with more experience, but you know, you've uh, showed a lot of interest and I want to give you a crack at it. And so I got into that next thing I was made an assistant coach and um, you know mainly concentrating on scouting the upcoming teams and the opponents and still doing video work and that's kind of how I got into basketball and from there they said well you've done a good job here now we need help in the personnel department could you go out and scout so I took on an additional title of director of scouting added to my assistant coaching title and uh, did that until 2001 when uh, the Denver Nuggets, I'd never been recruited before, and Kiki Vandeweghe, who now works in the league office uh, and was a great player in the league, he came to me and said, you know, I'm going to be the GM of the Nuggets and I need experience and you've been around for a while. It's a nice way to say that I was older by then, but he asked me to come and be the assistant GM of the Nuggets, which I did. And for five years and probably looking back, it was it was great experience, but it wasn't the jazz that, you know, had been my life and 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 all of that. And so it was quite a difference. And I'm proud of our accomplishments uh, that, you know, while I was in Denver, I worked with some great people. And some of these names you may know that were with the Nuggets, Tommy Shepard, who now runs the Washington Wizards, Masai Ujiri. Was with us as a scout, who's the president of Toronto, Jeff Weltman was the other assistant GM who's uh, at Orlando, you know, besides Kiki. So, you know, it was a continued learning experience, but it wasn't jazz and it wasn't maybe the same commitment. You know, Denver's a big Broncos city. You know, they also have the Rockies, they have the Avalanche and, you know, in Utah, the jazz are the only major professional uh, major league sports. Now they do have major league soccer now, but at the time, you know, they didn't, but, you know, we, we accomplished a lot, I think in Denver, but it's a crazy business. So we had won a division in 2005, 2006, and they came to, uh, to us in 2006 prior to the start of the, uh, 06, 07 season and said, we're having a management change and you're not part of it. And uh, I said, wow, you know, so I was at that time about 53 years old and decided that um, I had to start looking for a job. You know, what was I going to do? That was the first time. And uh, I said, usually you get fired for losing, but we had won a division. But you know what? That's part of the business. So I immediately started part-time doing some scouting in the Denver area for the Jazz both advanced NBA pro scouting and you know colleges in the area and then they started a D League team at the time before it was the G League and the Jazz were going to be an affiliate but they didn't own the team yet at that point and they asked me if I would come back and be general manager of that team and I did that and uh, for a year, and it was called the Utah Flash, and uh, we played in uh, Orem, Utah, which is about near Provo, about 40 miles south of Salt Lake, and I continued to scout part-time from the Jazz, and then another name that you're familiar with now was with the Jazz, and one of the great things that happened is I kept a good relationship, so when I left the Jazz, Kevin O'Connor was the general manager at the time, and he asked me if I had any recommendations, and I recommended Walt Perrin, who's now with the New York Knicks as assistant GM, and so Walt took my place, and he hired a guy by the name of Troy Weaver, who's now running the Detroit Pistons. Well, Troy was hired away from the Jazz by Oklahoma City, which created an opening, so Kevin came to me and said, would you be willing to come back to the Jazz as a scout? I said, oh, yes. I, you know, to get back in the NBA, of course, I would do that. And that's how I got back with the Jazz in 2008. You know, without getting too long and boring, how I got to my present uh, title and position, Kevin, I worked with Kevin for a few years, and then he called me. It was the last game of the Las Vegas Summer League, and he called to tell me that he was considering. A career change that basically he was uh thinking of stepping down as general manager of the team and uh, if i had any recommendations or whatever and you know i knew that they were going to make a decision and so i'd recommended i said i got one name for you it's dennis lindsey not that they listened to me but eventually they they got around to dennis and he was hired to replace kevin and kevin Uh, stayed on as a consultant. He's still with us as a consultant. And um, when Dennis came in, he came to me and he said, uh, Freddie, that's what people call me as a nickname. One of the nicknames, I guess they call me. Uh, He said, we don't have a pro personnel department. Would you be interested in heading that up and starting it for us? And I said, Dennis, I'll do whatever I can do to help the team and help us win. And if that's what you want me to do, you know, just tell me what you want and I'll do the best I can. And so that's where the Jazz started a pro personnel department. Dennis brought with him a very sharp young man uh, from San Antonio as an intern and his name's Bart Taylor and Bart's doing a lot of the administrative work and sort of, you know, today that this was in 2012. So I guess it's nine seasons later almost that uh, Bart's kind of taken the lead in the pro personnel even though I still kind of carry the title because I got this, uh, gray hair, but that's kind of how I got to where I am today. And, and it's been a great journey, uh, along the way. And I've been very fortunate, as I say, to work with great people.
1: Thank you. And that, that was anything but boring because the, the walkthrough of, of all the experiences you've had in all these different fields, whether it's, well, of course, um, all the different hats you've worn in the NBA, then obviously the one year you spent in the D league, the other league, it's really, it's just so, uh, you're, it's just so wide, uh, wide ranging that it, it was really impressive to just think about um, all those different skills you must have picked up from, from all those different steps. Um, there's so many points to talk about um, during, throughout that career. I'm curious about that in, that in the 84, 85, 86 season around that range when um, we're still being with the Jazz, um, You transitioned your transition to assistant coach, you also had uh, just been involved um, as, as, as the Jazz as, as an organization with, with getting your two future franchise players in John Stockton and Karl Malone. What, what did those few years look like? Because that's probably what everyone, when everyone thinks jazz, they, they automatically think to those nineties teams. but it all started back in, back in the mid eighties.
0: Well, they really do. And it, it did start then, you know, it all started with, with Frank Layden, you know, Frank is a, is a very unique individual and he was the, he started off being just a general manager. He had worked as Hubie Brown's assistant in Atlanta after he left a successful college coaching career at Niagara but Frank came to the team and we didn't have a, a lot of money. Obviously he knew that, you know, Frank used to joke. He said when he took the job was the year that the team moved from New Orleans to um, Salt Lake city. And Frank used to joke and say, people say, why do you, why do you want to be general manager of the jazz? And he said, well, the Knicks and the Celtics and the Lakers didn't ask me. And, you know, Frank was a funny guy and had a, Great sense of humor, but he was also a very astute basketball guy. And uh, so when the team was losing, he ended up having to take over the coaching reins as well as be general manager. You know, he used to try to deflect a lot of pressure off the team by being a funny guy. But as I mentioned, he was a a sharp basketball guy. And uh, again, those were the days we didn't have a lot of budget and a lot of money. It was before Larry Miller. Uh, stepped in and purchased half the team first from the original owner of the Jazz, and then Larry purchased the rest of it a year later. But in those days, you know, our scouting and our resources were limited. So Frank had relationships with a lot of people, and there was a guy by the name of Jack Gardner, who's a Hall of Famer, coached at Kansas State, and coached at the University of Utah, And Jack was retired and living on the West Coast, but uh, he still wanted to stay involved some. So we made him like a regional scout. And I think he first saw John Stockton play and alerted us to him. We were able to pick him a little bit higher than a lot of teams had him rated. You know, now I always say if we'd have been that smart with either John or Carl, we would have made trades and moved up and got him. But uh, I think John was like the 16th pick in the draft, and Carl ended up being 13. But we were able to get John. And, uh, but prior to that, Frank had built the team with, with no money. You know, we, we had to make a financial transaction in the 1982-83 season uh, just to stay in business, where we had drafted Hall of Fame with Dominique Wilkins and had to sell that. to the Atlanta Hawks for over a million dollars just to basically stay in business. And uh, now, fortunately, we had another Hall of Famer that was already playing small forward for us in Adrian Dantley, which Frank had acquired in a trade. And, uh, you know, getting back to Frank before I go on to Carl Malone, we've been fortunate in Utah to have Hall of Famers. You mentioned Stockton and Malone, Jerry Sloan, obviously, as a coach. And the common thread, and and even before that was Adrian Dantley, who we acquired in a trade the first year we were in Utah. We traded the Lakers' Spencer Haywood, and we got Adrian Dantley. So those four people are all in the Hall of Fame, Coach Sloan, Adrian Dantley, Stockton, and Malone. Well, all of them were brought to Utah by Frank Lane. And uh, so that's that's an interesting part of it. I mentioned Stockton. He went 16th. The other guy that Frank did a good job of bringing in was a a guard named Ricky Green. So people forget that prior to Stockton and Malone, which were definitely the cornerstones of the franchise that people know the Utah Jazz for, along with Jerry Sloan, but Frank had built a division-winning team from 1974 up until the 1983-84 season, the team had never had a winning season or made the playoffs. And prior to drafting John Stockton and then Malone in the next year, the the team won the division in 1984, and Frank was the all-star coach and all of that. We did that after having to sell Dominique Wilkins, and the team was, you know, teetering on barely staying in business, so it was very rewarding when we were able to win the division. And then from there, we were able to add Stockton and Malone, and Frank stepped down as the coach, and Jerry took over and. know the franchise uh took off to to points which we're hoping to surpass this year
1: Uh, of course and and it's so interesting to think about all those things that happened in the 70s and 80s that maybe many uh, um um, uh, current nba fans like myself were a little bit younger you know gen z don't really know too much about whether it's moses malone in the 70s and how that whole trade um dr j almost signed you as in 86 adrian danley those are all moves that really changed nba history and of course uh, the trajectory of the jazz, and and most, many of us don't know about it. I'm I'm curious about that 85, 86 year. And um, we're talking about how you guys had had um, the that, 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 that team that had won the division the year before, but now you had just gotten these two young players in Malone and Stockton. And the whole, the next, you were looking kind of more at the next 15 years. Um, and the, the whole trade with Adrian Daly going to the Pistons, um, what, what did that look like in terms of knowing um, and, and having faith in knowing what those next 15 years were like with the, these, this new uh, young team? And then, of course, everything with Dr. J and, and how that would have slightly altered uh, the way the team was going.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it was I think it was interesting, you know, uh, obviously Stockton evolved, you know, people don't realize that he didn't really start wasn't a full time starter until his third or fourth year in the league. He was Ricky Green's backup. As I mentioned, Ricky played in an all star game. And uh, once we got Carl Malone, we had Thurl Bailey who had played for North Carolina State, the uh, NCAA ch- champion in 1983. And there was sort of a duplication. Now, you may say that you can never have too many, too many good players, but, you know, Adrian had been a victim of a, of a contract holdout and things like that. And Frank wearing two hats at the time, being coach and general manager, there was a, there was a little bit of a bad blood at the time. And so we decided for Carl Malone's development because Adrian you know, who pound for pound, inch for inch may be one of the more productive NBA players that I've ever seen. You know, he could score inside, had all the post moves, but that's where Carl needed to be. And, uh, so it was kind of hard. We, we didn't want to put Carl totally out on the perimeter and we saw that. And so we traded him for Kelly Trupuka, who had been a, a good player for the Pistons and, you know, certain trades make out work out. Some don't Dantley, was with Detroit, and I think he got um, to the finals one year. Then they made a trade for Mark Aguirre and ended up winning winning the championships. So, you know, that's how, that's how those things evolved. You know, there was a decision made. Now, did we know that Stockton and Malone were going to play together all those years? And have great streaks and both of them were iron Men. you know, they didn't miss games, they didn't miss practice. Uh, we probably didn't know that, but we did know that probably for Carl to reach his potential, we needed to move on with Adrian Dantley because they basically on offense played the same post-up
1: position. You want you to always know that you have the n- number two all-time leading score and the and the best passer and still, and, and the, when it comes to steals of all time, um, but it's it's of course very important to look at the future and think about what that development could look like and, and what and what might happen if, if we if we go full full steam ahead on that, which is great. For the years that followed, obviously we all everyone everyone listening watched the last dance, saw kind of those those, those 90s jazz, but they they really touched too much on maybe those early nineties, mid nineties. John Stockton shot against the Rockets. So much went into that uh, jazz team that maybe we well, we kind of only think of them as those two as those two finals series, um, but there's so much in the Western Conference Finals they had to go through to get to that point can you touch on a little bit of what that might have looked like maybe from your perspective of obviously of obviously being there and, and living through it um watching that team grow and develop and make it f- out of the west out of the first round out of the second round um fighting in the, in the conference finals what did that all really yeah, look
0: like you know we we got some notoriety obviously starting in the mid 80s as i mentioned winning the division but then it was like it was hard to advance in the playoffs we were not a surprise anymore as Stockton and Malone were emerging. We had a great center defensively. Mark Eaton was a two-time defensive center. Um, You know, the game is a lot different than you could. Mark was not uh, an offensive type of center. You know, he set great screens, but his thing was shot blocking and defensive rebounding. So we had to add pieces around that. And there were a lot of first round. There were a couple first round uh, exits that that were tough or second round exits and it was it was tough trying to get over the hump. Finally, in 1992, uh, we got to the conference finals and we lost to Portland, who ended up going to the finals. And then again, in 1994, we played Houston and got to the uh, conference finals again, which is the final four, still not being able to break through You know, we felt our best chance, you know, Jordan had a hiatus for two years when he played baseball, as you saw in the last dance. We thought that that might be a a great chance for us, but uh, we ran into a hot Houston Rocket team in in 95, even though we had home court advantage back then. The first round was a best of five. They came back in game five and uh, had a hot fourth quarter and beat us and went on to win a championship. So You know, all of those things were, you know, one of the things that I admire the most, having been on the coaching staff and seen how John Stockton, Carl Malone and Jerry Sloan dealt with things like that was the fact that they came back every year ready to go back at it again. They could shake off the disappointment and, uh, you know, from a player standpoint, Malone and Stockton came back better every fall for training camp and ready to go again. And it's a great lesson in life that, you know, you're going to get knocked down. How you respond to that is going to decide what your future holds. And that was a great learning experience. So, again, we got beat in the first round by Houston, who won the championship. Then in 96, we to the conference finals, lost to Seattle, you know, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp and all that lost in a game seven. So we knew we were getting closer, and, you know, we had added Jeff Hornacek in the mid nineties along the way to Stockton and Malone. And, you know, Mark Eaton had, had, uh, had a back injury and retired. We acquired Antoine Carr, who you saw maybe in, in some of the last dance and Greg Ostertag, Greg Foster. You know, we, we had Howard Isley, Shandon Anderson, you know, being from New York, you may remember some of those guys that played some for the Knicks in the late 90s and early 2000s. Finally, in 97, we, uh, we broke through and uh, we won in the in the conference finals and, and played the Bulls and and we lost, but we came back again and, you know, we were ready to go and we ended up having the best record in 98 in the 97-98 season, had home court advantage against the Bulls, but ended up losing two home games. And uh, obviously, the last dance was well put together, uh, even though it focused more on the Bulls, as it should. You know, uh, having gone through that and had to compete against Michael Jordan and knowing that's the reason I'm still chasing a ring today, you know, my personal, my personal opinion is that He is the greatest to ever play. And it'd be hard to change my mind over that. But that takes nothing away from the great players that we're seeing today. That takes nothing away from the fact that LeBron James is is a great player and and a great ambassador for our game. But when you come this close to a championship and Jordan takes it twice, it's very hard for me to imagine anybody else being the greatest ever. It's really
1: funny in thinking about of course, how you ended that with that with the story about Jordan, but in general, it, it is incredibly important to think about the Jazz, not just as those two cha- uh, fi- finals finals teams that went to the finals, but the, the teams before that, that, that led to that point, right? The, the buildup. And that's what's so interesting as basketball historians. I thank you so much for, for being so uh, exact in, in, in every single detail of every single season, because uh, it really does paint a, a beautiful picture of the Jazz as, as more than those two years mean um, seeing their whole history um in, in, in its entirety kind of moving over obviously after those jazz years when you had gone to the nuggets um it's funny you brought up tommy Shepard before he's he's come on the show and and spoke really highly of, of his jazz of, of his years with the with the nuggets obviously uh, during that time period that you were there the, the one thing that sticks out to almost everyone when they when they see the the, the years is a 2003 because that's that's what we everyone calls kind of uh, the draft. um you were a big part of the draft in 84 and the draft in 2003 and everyone kind of always talks about which one was the draft, which one would you take? I'm, I'm curious being that uh, being part of the team that drafted Carmelo Anthony, as well as a team that, that drafted John Stockton in that year's draft.
0: Well, you know, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard. You know, when you, when you look back and you say, you know, a draft, obviously Stockton was in that draft, you know, there were other really good players, you know, that came out in the draft Charles Barkley, I think was in that draft and, that Stockton was in and but at the time you know we were focused on when I was in Denver in 2003 obviously LeBron, Carmelo and then people have to mention Darko Milicic because he was a factor had Detroit not taken him number two you know then a lot of history would have been rewritten too so Darko went second and we were fortunate enough to get Carmelo you know with the Nuggets and then you know, we thought that there was a divide. And we said, yeah, there's sort of a divide at the time, you know, between maybe the top three and then four or five. We said, yeah, Dwayne Wade's pretty good. Yeah, Bosch is pretty good. Well, both of them probably are, are going to be, if not Hall of Famers, certainly candidates for a Hall of Fame. So, you know, maybe we didn't know how good that draft really was at the time, you know, when when you need players like like we did at the time in rebuilding the Nuggets.
1: Oh, important, it, it, of course, and it's so important to think about all that. Um, and, and when it comes to going into draft, what what uh, the mindset of the team is, of course, going into it, the players on the board, what, where your position is. Because it's interesting how having the th- top, uh, the, the third pick in that 03 draft and then the 16th pick in the 84 draft, and still coming away with, with generational talents, it, it, it's incredible to think of, of how it can go both ways.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, what? again, it gets back to you gotta you gotta be a little lucky, but you know, the other thing that I've learned over the years is the harder you work, the better chance of having good luck you're gonna
1: have. Oh, a hundred percent. Moving over kind of thinking about maybe after those nuggets years, um just kind of with the thing, just thinking about about uh, all the time you spent there. Uh, moving over to, with the Jazz, those kind of years with, with Andre Kirilenko, Darren Williams, those those Jazz teams. One thing that stuck out to me when thinking about them was that really people kind of forget how good Andre Kirilenko was as a defender, as an, as an overall player. Um, is this there, there something you could you could speak on in terms of maybe those playoff series you guys were in and, and, and the impact he might've had?
0: Yeah, Andre Kirilenko was interesting. That was my last, one of the last things that I was involved in before I'd left the Jazz to go to Denver. Because if you recall, or you look back, we drafted Andre, then left him over in Europe for two years before he came to the NBA. And, uh, you know, we had a scout who I think still works for the Knicks, a very good scout named Kevin Wilson. And uh, Scott Layden was our general manager at the time. You know, we had a full roster, and we couldn't really take on uh, very many more players you know, we didn't play with the injured list back then, you know, that's rule changes over the years are, are a lot different. So we didn't, you know, we drafted Andre because we knew he could stay over there. Now we had watched video on him and we operated back in those days where we had reports from Kevin, but we didn't really even tell Kevin who was uh, Kevin Wilson was our European scout, but was located in Spain that we were really interested in him. But again, we thought we had a pretty good player. I remember it was after that draft, I went over to Portugal, to Lisbon, Portugal, to scout the world championships, or it was the under 20 and under. And Andre was just 18 and we had just drafted him. And that's the first time I'd actually seen him in person. And I thought, oh boy, we got another one. We might, <laughs> we might have gotten lucky again. And uh, he was a very talented player. He could pass the ball. He obviously could block shots. You know, they talk about all these statistical things. He was the first with the five by five to be able to have like five points, five assists, five rebounds, five steals, five block shots in the game. You know, he was, he was that versatile. Uh, was never a great shooter, but he had improved his shooting. We had hired Jeff Hornacek to come on and help him with his shooting, and he ended up improving his shooting. But uh, he had a good career. Now, in our system that we ran, which was based on a lot of pick and roll and things like that, with Stockton and Malone and all that, I'm not so sure when I look back and think about it realistically would Andre have been better in a system where he could have been a point forward because he was that good of a passer and playmaker. And maybe, you know, maybe in that system, he may have flourished even more, but he had a great career, great guy, great family man. And uh, I'm glad to see him doing well.
1: Beautiful because thank you for going so in-depth on a player that many people maybe uh, today in 2021 don't really think too much about. But it's it's incredible to think about the story of someone who had such an impact maybe that the, 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 the traditional stats maybe wouldn't show. And you had mentioned earlier about how close it has it come in the, in the late '90s. This year's Jazz team is looking really, really strong. Obviously, as, as we, with, with the win streaks and, and with the way that the team's been playing as of late, I'm curious. Maybe in terms of how this team kind of came about, um, one of your first years coming back with the Jazz, you had, uh, the team had drafted Rudy Gobert. What did it look like, maybe around the draft time with with, with someone that was that was that big, that that maybe athletic and versatile, um, and 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 kind of seeing how he's developed to this point, where with multi-time Defensive Player of the Year and all the things that come with that.
0: Well, you know, I was fortunate enough to have seen Rudy as a much younger player. One of the years of the lockout that didn't last very long, just a few months before the it started like July 1st. And I think it was settled by October 1st. So we didn't miss any games, thankfully. But, you know, Kevin O'Connor, the general manager at the time, told me to go over to Europe and he sent Walt Perrin at the time over to Europe to you know, scout there, because obviously there was no summer leagues to scout and all of that. And I'd seen Rudy and somebody pointed out that his father had played at with Rick Smiths in college. And Rick was a longtime center of the Indiana Pacers. And his father was a guy by the name of, I think, Rudy Bouguerell. So I saw Rudy, and he was a big, big, very skinny guy. So I'd seen him, but I also saw he's a shot blocker. And I mentioned that Mark Eaton, the experience of being with the rim protector. Now, did I know Rudy was going to be that good? No, not not at all. Was I responsible? Not at all. You know, Kevin O'Connor, by then we had a a scout over in Europe by the name of Rich Shoebrooks, who uh, had worked for a few other NBA teams and also worked for Nike. He was all over Rudy. Uh, Walt Perrin went over to see him play at the time. So I'd love to be able to take credit, but it was Dennis Lindsay who's still running the jazz, who was able to call Denver. It was Denver's pick. And we actually bought that first round pick uh, to be able to get Rudy. And so it was a very astute move on, on, uh, on Dennis's part. And he's been obviously a big part of, of what we've done. And, you know, speaking of Dennis again, you got to give him credit because he also made a trade to move up in the draft. Uh, when we didn't have the 13th pick, uh, we moved up and got Donovan Mitchell. So again, you know, things happen. You got to be ready. You know, it's always interesting when, when you're scouting in college or for the draft, and you know, some teams say, well we don't have a draft pick. Well, how do you know you might not get one on draft night? You've got to be prepared anyway, whether you go in or we're only picking 20 something, you know, so we don't have to look at the top guys. Well, you better because you've got to be ready for any eventuality. And I think that's the thing that most fans maybe don't understand when they're looking. Even now, as the season's going on, and you say, well, they're not going to finish there. They're not going to be able to look at those top players. Well, how do you know that as the draft's going on, you may not have that opportunity and you have to be prepared. And and I credit Dennis Lindsay for, for being uh, very forward thinking and being able to make those type of deals.
1: That's a wonderful point that you brought up in thinking about what um, can go on in a draft. And when Adam Felipe had come on, he had said the same thing. And I, I uh, began to uh, scout school in, in the Barclays Center, and he, he, he showed us um, all these games and we were scouting all these players. And he, he made such a big point of saying, you look at everybody, maybe your focus is on one person, but you have to see the whole field. And, and we had asked what happens if if you maybe have no picks in that year, you trade them all away. He said, you still, you might, you, you, you as a scouting department have to be aware at all times because the GM needs to know. So really, uh, thank you for for mentioning that, and, and especially of Donovan Mitchell, how important it was that you guys were able to to see that the talent in him, um, with his eventual uh, Rookie of the Year campaign that felt that like had just fallen short uh, with Ben Simmons, and that that thinking about that it, it, it led to me to think of the question um, that, that really was uh, everyone was talking about recently: Gobert and Donovan Mitchell both being the last picks in the All Star game. That idea of 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 uh, of guys from Utah not really um, being looked at in the same way in the media. Um, is, is that something that maybe in the, in the years that you've, you've seen that happen, maybe more so often than not?
0: Yeah. And you know what? I just tell people and our young, our young staff members, you know, they, they worry about it. And I just say, you know, the only way you change that is by winning. Then they have to talk about you. So, you know, with this current group, I like our team. I certainly like our coach and Quinn Snyder. He's done a great job with them. But we still we have to prove we can win in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, we're we're enjoying our success thus far, and having the best record to date in the NBA and all of that. Hopefully that helps us with seeding in the playoffs. But that's how you earn. You know, that's how you earn it. As great of a coach as Jerry Sloan was, he never won the official coach of the year record. And then this past All-Star game, when when Quinn Snyder was able to coach in it, They said, you know, the last coach was Frank Layden, the coach in the All-Star game, because Coach Sloan never had the best record at the time, you know, and you know what? I think if you're worried about individual achievement and all that, it comes from team achievement. I mean, I think people understand Rudy's been the two-time defensive player of the year. I think Donovan's now been a two-time All-Star. He's won the slam dunk. And I got to mention some of the things that both of these guys have done off the court, their stance on social justice, and they put their money where their mouth is and in their very charitable donations to causes that they believe in. I think that comes, but that comes with winning.
1: Hundred percent, of winning definitely plays a huge part in that. What I was really happy to see this year was Mike Conley get his first All Star appearance um, in his whole career after after being so close and being on the on the snubs list. I feel like almost every year over the last few over the last few years, I'm thinking about how he's been playing. like mean, it kind of begged the question of of the of going back um, two years to the to the trade that brought him to 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 Utah and what's really formed. Uh, one of the last steps in forming this, this team that was really looking at people for a championship. Can you, can you go into, into detail on that maybe and, and, and what maybe you guys saw um, in someone that was getting older but is still in the right system like he has in Utah able to c- contribute so much?
0: Yeah, and again, without trying to sound too corny, again, you love to see players like Mike who wins citizenship awards from the NBA for what he does off the court. But he is a very underrated player. I remember, you know, when he came out of school, he was with Greg Oden, who because of injuries and everything didn't pan out as well, uh, was the guy that always be remembered for being picked over Kevin Durant. Um, he was, Mike was a guard. And, you know, my thing is when I scouted him, I said, you know, this guy's pretty good, but he can't shoot. Well, he sure can shoot now. I mean, he's really, to his credit, his mindset, he worked on his perimeter shooting and he's always been a very savvy player. and. Uh, but you know, one who has worked. And so you love to see guys like that have success. I think when we first got him in the trade, he was trying so hard to fit in and it was a totally different role than he had had at Memphis. Where he had the ball in his hands most of the time and Coach Snyder's offense is a read and react and multiple ball handlers, multiple guys that can run pick and roll. And then Mike had had uh, some problems with a hamstring last year. Then he was just getting it back, you know, when we got in the bubble and we had the disappointing exit uh, to in the series against Denver. But, you know, again, to go back to an earlier theme, real champions are the ones that can pick themselves up and go, go right back at it. And it, it's been rewarding to see thus far. Mike is a good player. And I think that, you know, again, we wanted to. We had Ricky Rubio, who, who was good for us. Prior to that, we had George Hill. We were just trying to find the right point guard in a real non-traditional point guard setting, where now Donovan can play some at the point guard and some at the two when he plays with Conley. And, uh, you know, it, it takes a while sometimes to adapt. You know, one of, the, one of the great things for me personally that I've been able to see over the years, the game has really changed. And how we look at the game has changed and you know for me uh, to see the advances from analytics and things like that and, and and listen i don't pretend to understand all the analytics but i do find them fascinating that is another piece of the puzzle you know when it gets to be too much i joke with the other guys i said let's not become dot connectors let's still make sure that we're basketball guys and we're evaluating that too but it's really a helpful tool, analytics in, in evaluation, because it helps confirm what you think you see sometimes. It's almost like when I first started, there was a videotape. That's how old I am. You know, they had the old projectors and and film that, you know, people had to watch and all of that. And so we we even called it film when it became videotape. And, you know, now, so we used to say, Well, what you see live confirms what you saw on the tape or the film. And now the analytics also will confirm that. And uh, it's a wonderful tool, but it just shows the changes. You know, it's a different game. The number of three-point shots attempted, the wide open nature of the game, the rule changes and all of that. So in order to stay involved, you got to stay up on that.
1: Thank you so much for transitioning to to a point that leads me right into my last question. Um, being that you've had so much experience and you've been through the league during all these changes, both on the court and off it, um, you, you already touched on the changes on the court. I'm curious in terms of off the court, maybe in the front office, um, on the coaching sideline, um, when it comes to the business side of basketball, what are the biggest changes you've seen um, when it comes to maybe people, uh, younger people getting their foot in the door, um, people entering the business? What are the, what are the major changes that you've seen over the last 40 to 50 years of you being in the business? Well, it's the financial
0: part of it. I mean, it's 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 really big business. It's more corporate. And in some ways, I lament that. And I go, we don't have as many characters as when I first became in the league. We're more corporate now. However, I tell people, and I'll tell you, just think about this for a second. The Jazz fee for entering the NBA in 1974, the expansion fee was $6.15 million dollars. When Ryan Smith just recently purchased the jazz, or 80% of the jazz from the Miller family, the price was $1.66 billion, that's reported. So with those numbers, when, if you, you let that sink in, it's more of a business. I mean, there's so many people now on our medical service staff, which takes care of the players. They have private chefs that take care of the players more, uh, there's analytics for, for trainers now, you know, on injuries and the coaching staffs are bigger. The scouting staffs are bigger. The front office staffs are bigger. So in some ways, I, 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 like to say, I, gosh, I remember the old days where I knew everybody very well by their first names and, and all of that. And we were a small family unit, but you can't stop progress. I also have to tell people that this is the best shape that the NBA has ever been in because the resources are there to maximize that makes our jobs easier. I told the ownership at the time, the Miller family, when we were able to purchase a first round draft pick to get Rudy Gobert, I said, you know, I'm the only one in the room that was around when we had to sell our first round draft pick in order to stay in business for over a million dollars in Dominique Wilkins. And now we're able to buy the 27th pick for $3 million and you can see what that's done. So it's better for the fan. It's better for everybody else, the bigger staffs and all of that. But you know, you can't, you can't lose sight and get too big, but it is more corporate, but it's, it's run more like a business now. You know, I don't have to worry about, well, when Pete Maravich is checked, clears you better hope it's not the same day you try to cash yours because maybe there won't be enough money in the bank or if you needed an expense check you may have to back in the old days you may have to go out and collect from a sponsor so it's it's better funded it's better business now but that's the biggest change to answer your question
1: that is so insightful and in thinking about um, how the how the nba is run now compared to how it used to be run and, and really just an inside look at how everything uh, both both in the jazz and in the nba as a whole how much you've seen so mr fredman thank you so much for coming on and sharing all that insight with us it, it was wonderful i'm um, hearing all this all of that all of that knowledge from you and, and really thank you so much for coming on
0: well it's my pleasure and if i can help come on again i'll be glad to do that thanks a lot for having me
1: thanks for listening to gen z hoops Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe on Instagram, LinkedIn,
0: and all major social media platforms at Gen Z Hoops. You can tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and every other podcast platform on the planet. Get ready for the next episode.